You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Amen. Lord bless you guys. It's great to see you tonight. Welcome. If you're new here, we are just really blessed to have you tonight. A couple things. Uh, We are going to be starting our summer barbecues. Uh, Not next Wednesday, but the first Wednesday in July. So... If, uh, if you want to come early during those Wednesdays of July and August, we'll have uh, barbecue here. The, the church will provide the meat and the, the drinks, and, and you, you bring a side dish. Um, so keep that in mind. Uh, show up here at 6 o'clock, or you can get here a little bit early if you like. Um, we're going to have tents out in the front of the building to shade things. I know last year um, it was really hot, and so we're going to try to set up some tarps uh, also in addition to the tent so that the sun doesn't shoot under the tents and we'll try to shade it as best we can and uh, we'll have a great time uh, together on Wednesdays through July and August. So uh, keep that in mind and uh, we just appreciate you guys to to continue in prayer uh, in this season of transition for our church and and just in all that God is doing uh, and we just Thank you. As a leadership team, we thank you guys for being mature and, and for handling this well. And, and there, there hasn't been uh, widespread gossip or backbiting or things uh, that aren't of Jesus. We haven't seen that. And we just are so thankful for that, thankful for what God is doing. And I just ask that you continue uh, to do that in, in this season of transition and this time where um, you know, things are um, just vulnerable to the enemy. But the really cool thing is, is that I, I haven't seen as much in my, in my time here since I planted the church seven years ago. I haven't seen the Lord doing as much in the hearts of people as He is right now. There's been no better season in our church than right now, in, in what God is doing in individual lives, in, in, in the stories that I'm hearing, in the fruit that's coming forth, in people getting it, in you guys getting the mission of the church, and getting what we're called to do, and actually doing it. Now, does everybody in the church get it? No. Do all of you get it? No. Some of you don't. You need to. But many, many are. Many are just radically being transformed by the gospel, by the, the, the Christocentricity in the word, seeing Jesus in every page of the Bible, it is transforming lives. And I'm so excited about that. And in some sense, I, I'm kind of thinking, okay, I'm, I'm leaving in the best season of the church, but you know what? That's what I've always wanted Never to have uh, left a sinking ship. N- never wanted to leave going, well, that was a failure. You know, m- nah, that didn't work out very well. I guess we'll go try it again somewhere else. I came to Prineville with the express intent of planting a healthy, Jesus-centered, gospel-focused church. And that's what we have. It doesn't need Ryan to succeed. It- it's going to continue on. 
to grow and to thrive and to reach this community. And, and we're going to go do it somewhere else. And we're going to hopefully see the Lord do amazing things uh, there as well. And God's going to continue to bless here. But, but please do not let the enemy work now. Watch your tongues. Watch what you say. Make sure that you think about what you're saying and the, the repercussions of what you're saying before you say it. And if you have an issue or if you have a problem, talk to one of the leaders. Like I said, we haven't seen widespread uh, issue. But there, there's just been some little things. But please, be mindful. Continue to pray. Continue to seek Jesus. Continue to know that this is His church. And He's doing awesome things. And the last thing we want to see is the enemy have any kind of a foothold in, in, in any way, shape, or form. Tonight we're going to be in 2 Samuel, you guys, chapter 14, continuing to look at the life of David, continuing to go through the Old Testament, finding our way here in 2 Samuel. And if you haven't been with us through our study in 2 Samuel... We're at that place where David's sin is now starting to reap the fruit of what sin always does. It's starting to reap the fruit of destruction and devastation in his life and in his family. And we saw that David repented of his own personal sin in chapter 12 as Nathan the prophet came to him. And said, you are the man, David. It's you. You need to repent. And David did that. And he confessed his sin. And he repented of his sin. And he got right with God. But as we talked about, just because you repent, just because you deal with your sin before God, does not mean that you won't have repercussions. It doesn't mean that the fruit of your sin will not come and have its way in your life. And you won't be held accountable by God and you won't be judged by God. But there's repercussions for your sin. And know that, Christians, know it. Before you gossip, before you allow the lust that's in your heart to drive you to do ungodly things, know that there's repercussions and God doesn't spare you from that. And the, the repercussions of David's sin, as was prophesied by Nathan, that the sword would not depart from his house. There would be massive judgment to pay for his sin that would reap in his own home. And we see that with Amnon and Tamar in chapter 13. We looked at it last Wednesday as Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar. Then he told her to get out of his life. He wanted nothing to do with her. He wouldn't marry her. He wouldn't take care of her as what would have been proper. And so Absalom, the full brother of, of Tamar, he, he kind of saw her as, as his sister that he was to take care of. And he was so incensed by Amnon's sin that he, he harbored it for two years. And he plotted and he planned until he finally killed Amnon. And that's where we left off in chapter 13, where it says Absalom fled and went to Talmai, that is his grandfather, the son of Ahimahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. And that's speaking of Amnon. 
See, David did nothing about the sin of Amnon. He, he didn't try to bring any kind of recompense to Tamar. He didn't judge Amnon. He did nothing about it. And during this time, Absalom is plotting the death of his brother because his dad, who is a worthless father, a wonderful king, a phenomenal writer, a man after God's own heart, but a horrible father. And it's a terrible legacy to live. It's a total and horrible legacy to leave behind. To be a man who's well-respected in your in your field, to be a man who's well-respected in the church, but a man who is absolutely abhorred in his home. Men, do not let that happen to you. Quit abdicating your leadership role to your wife. Get it back. Start being a man. Start ruling your house in love and in grace and in gospel-centered, Jesus-focused fashion. Otherwise, you'll have these kinds of things happening in your own home. Your kids will hate you. Your kids will hate God. Your wife won't respect you. She will lead the home. If you don't lead it, somebody will. It'll be your children. It'll be your wife. It'll be the dog. Somebody is going to lead that house. And too many Christian men have given that leadership role to their wives. And it's sickening. And it's sad. And that needs to be repented of. And men, quit blaming your wives. It's not their fault. If, if she's leading the home, it's because you allowed her to. It's because you gave her the ability and the right to do it. And David did nothing about Amnon. He just sat on it because he was afraid. He was afraid of what people might think. He was afraid of how his children would view him. And he just sat on it because he feared man. And see, that's why, men, we don't lead our homes. It's why we don't lead our homes, because we're afraid. Because we're afraid of men. We're afraid of women. We're, we have this fear of people that the Bible says is a snare. And the only way, you guys, to get rid of this fear of people that you might have not only in your home, but maybe in your workplace, maybe throughout your lives, this fear of people, the only way to get rid of that is to have a fear of God that is bigger than that. We talked about that on Sunday in Luke chapter 12. As Jesus is talking about hypocrisy and wearing a mask and being phony and fake like the Pharisees. And he says, beware of that. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. It's hypocrisy. And we talked about how that stems from the fear of man. And Jesus goes from there into talking about the fear of God. He says, why are you fearing men who can take your life, but that's it? You ought to fear God who can not only take your life, but he can cast you into hell. A much more powerful person to fear. And so the only way, you guys, to get rid of the fear of man is to have a bigger fear of God. And see, that is the problem in the church. That is why, Christians, we are not on fire for Jesus. It's why there's rampant sin in our life. There's why it's idolatry is consuming us in the love of this world rather than the love of God because we don't fear God. We simply don't. We've been fed this apathetic, lukewarm kind of Christianity for so long that, that basically just says do whatever you want and, and God loves you and, 
And, and you know what? There's, there's a part of that that's true. But there's a part of that that's absolutely not true. And we need to repent. We need to have and get back to a sense of the righteous, holy, judgmental God that the Bible speaks about. Who poured out His wrath upon His Son. Not so that we could have cheap grace, but so that we could be absolutely and totally overwhelmed with who He is. Which leads us to holiness. Not to this lukewarm, idolatrous life. Men, it starts with you and your homes. Quit making excuses. Repent. Lead your wives. Lead your kids. Wash them in the water of the word. Take them to Jesus. It's what David failed to do. And Absalom fled. He went to his grandfather's house. And David mourned for his son every day. Amnon is who he's mourning for. But this mourning didn't turn into anything substantial. You can mourn all you want. But unless you repent, it doesn't mean a thing. And so Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom. For he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. And so now David, having turned his grief from Amnon into a missing of his son Absalom because Absalom was the third oldest son in David's family. Well, Amnon was the oldest son. He's dead. The second son, Chiliab, we read nothing about him anymore. So many scholars believe he probably had passed away as well or was completely out of the picture somehow. And so Absalom was the the next in line to take over the kingdom. And so by David not dealing with this, not only was it hurting his family specifically, but it was affecting the kingdom of Israel as a nation as well. Because if David was to pass away, who would take over? Solomon was a young man at this time. And so it was... Something that needed to be taken care of, not only from a family perspective, but from a national perspective. And really the, the theme of this section here in first, Second Samuel 14 and the first part of 15 is forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration can only come through justice and genuine repentance. See, we want these things. We want forgiveness. We want reconciliation with God. And with people, we want restoration. But it can only come through justice. That is sin being dealt with in accordance with God's holiness. The theological term is propitiation. We're we're going to talk about that tonight. But this idea of forgiveness, we want that. And reconciliation, we want that. We want to have peace with God. We want to have peace with one another. And restoration, we want to be put back in that place. Maybe you've offended somebody and you want restoration. You want them to restore you. You want them to say, come on back. Let's let's be just like it was before. And that's what we all want. We want to be restored. There's nothing wrong with that. But know this, it can only come through justice and genuine repentance. And see, that's exactly what David and Absalom fail to realize in our text. What they 
do in this section is basically allow cheap grace to abound. Forgiveness with no merit. Restoration with no repentance. Reconciliation with no propitiation, with no justice. In the first 24 verses, we see David being deceived into restoring Absalom. Let's read that together. So Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. Joab was the commander of David's army. Also, interestingly enough, Joab is the nephew of David. So he knew David well. He had been his commander. David was his uncle. He looked up to David. And yet, because of these compromises in David's life, David really erodes the relationship. And Joab ultimately will die at the hands of David because he undermines him. It's too many times. This relationship sort of gets damaged to the point of no return. But they're, they're not only co-workers and co-laborers for the nation of Israel, they're also relatives. And Joab perceives that David was concerned about Absalom. And so even though there had been three years where David really had nothing to do with Absalom, his heart is beginning to, to want to restore Absalom. And maybe it was from a nationalistic perspective. Maybe David realized, look, I've got to do something about this because who's going to take my place on the throne? And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel and do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. So Joab sends to this city and he gets a really good actress. I want you to come. I want you to pretend like someone close to you has been dead for a while and you're just absolutely broken up about it. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. He tells her everything to say. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. So she sets the scene here. I'm a widow. Which means that she didn't have a husband to take care of her. She, she would be reliant at that point upon her children, specifically upon her sons. Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. And so she's really sort of painting a picture that would have been similar to Cain and Abel, sort of giving David, who was a master of the Torah, something to kind of sink his teeth into. He would have been able to resonate with this story, this fictional story. Two sons. I don't have a husband. My two sons fought. One killed the other. No one there to to help. And now the whole family has risen up against me, your maidservant, and they said, deliver him who struck his brother that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. And so she's really pulling on David's heartstrings. 
saying, I've got no husband. I've only got one son left. And now the rest of my family is coming against me. They want me to deliver this one son who, yes, he's a murderer. And yes, the law would say he needs to be held accountable for his crime. And the the law would say that he could flee to a city of refuge. But he would have to go before the priests and they would have to determine if he was guilty or not. And if he was guilty, they would hand him over. And she is thwarting that plan, that process. So the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. Now there really aren't any orders to give. David knew the right thing. This, this man needed to be turned over. She was harboring a fugitive unlawfully. But David says, look, I'll, I'll think about it. Because his heart had been kind of wrenched. And why is that? Because he was compromised in his life. And you guys, when you are in sin, when you're living a compromised life, it will then lead you to not be bold in challenging people in their own lives. It will lead you to where you're not able to point out areas of sin in others' lives. You want to sort of gloss over those. You don't want to be bold because you know that you're compromised. And if you lay down what the scripture says to them, then that means it applies to you as well. And and who wants that when you're in sin? And so you see how our sin, unrepented of, leads to more sin. He says, look, go back to your house. I'll think about it. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. In other words, do you really want to have to deal with this king? Why don't we just deal with this sooner than that? Give me an answer now. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And so now David is protecting a guilty murderer simply because this woman gave him a good story. David's now compromising His position as king and harboring fugitives, at least fictionally. Therefore, the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. At this point, she's really taking liberties that would have been very unusual to to take with the king. And he said, Say on. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? David's probably thinking at this point, not again, not Nathan again. What is going on? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. So she nailed him. Said, okay, if you are protecting my son, who's a murderer, and saying that he can go free and nobody can bring judgment upon him, then why are you continuing to banish your son Absalom? David was nailed. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. This woman, 
actually clearly articulates the gospel, probably without realizing it or recognizing it. He says, our life is like a glass of water poured out on the ground. You can't gather it back. It's like a vapor. It's here for a little while and it's gone. We're, we're quickly dying. And yet God does not take away a life. God does not leave us in that hopeless state. But he devises means. God had a plan. She didn't understand this plan. But God has had a plan from the very foundations of the world. He has been devising a plan so that his banished ones, those who are exiled from God, enemies of God because of their sin, banished from him, separated from him, will not be expelled or cast out forever. So those that are separated from God, God has devised a plan so that they would not be judged or cast out. A clear rendering of the gospel here in 2 Samuel 14. This woman speaks of Jesus, points to Jesus, God's plan of redemption, so that we who have been separated from God, banished from Him, will not be cast out eternally. Now therefore... I have come to speak of this thing to my Lord the King because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the King. It may be that the King will perform the request of his maidservant. And so now she's covering her backside. She's saying, look, I I want you to know I came here because I was really afraid and the people made me afraid. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord the king in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. And so now she's just flattering him. Calling him an angel. Calling him the the wisest man. And you hear from God and you do the right thing. And she's now making sure that she's not going to be judged. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please let the Lord, my king, speak. So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? David's not dumb. He he now sees what's happening here. He's putting two and two together. Is, Is Joab with you on this? Because I'm sure that Joab had been coming to David saying, David, you really should try to bring Absalom back. David, you really ought to think about the implications. And because David wouldn't heed Joab's advice, he created this fictional story, found a woman to act it out, and now David has caught himself in a trap. But he figures out, this is Joab, isn't it? And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing. But my lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. And so she's continuing just to pour it on. And the king said to Joab, All right, I have granted this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. 
Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. And so what we have here is David being deceived into restoring Absalom. Joab created this whole plan so that Absalom would be restored. However, there was no forgiveness and no reconciliation on David's part. There's restoration back to his position in the kingdom because Joab deceived David into doing that. So there's, there's restoration, but there's no forgiveness and there's no reconciliation to David. David doesn't forgive his son. He doesn't reconcile his son, but there's restoration. Do you see how that's completely backwards? Nor is there any justice served. Absalom is not asked to be at all judged or punished for his sin. He's not held accountable for his murder. So there's no justice and there's no repentance on Absalom's part. So what we have is no forgiveness, no reconciliation from David, but we have restoration of Absalom and we have no repentance and no justice served for Absalom. And so it's completely backwards. And know this, you guys, in your relationship with God, if you want to be forgiven by Him, if you want to be reconciled to Him, that is to have peace with Him, and if you want to be restored, there has to be justice or propitiation, that is judgment for your sin, which is poured out upon Jesus Christ at the cross. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus and so it's not cheap grace. It's not sugar daddy in the sky where God just says, you know what, it's not a big deal, let's just write this off. No, there was judgment. There was justice poured out upon Jesus. And so it's not cheap grace. And then there's repentance, genuine repentance that John the Baptist says has to bear fruits worthy of repentance. And so you receive the judgment poured out on Jesus. You repent. You turn from your sin. And then there's forgiveness from God. There's reconciliation to God. And there's restoration to that place of right standing with Him. The place where you were originally created to have relationship with Him as an image bearer of God. But see, that doesn't just come willy-nilly. It doesn't just come because God decided, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. Let's just go ahead and forget it ever happened. And see, that's what David and Joab are wanting to do with Absalom. And God doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way at all. In verses 25 through 33 to the end of the chapter, we see that Joab is now coerced, the deceiver being deceived, into pleading Absalom's case. It says, now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. 
And when he cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. And when he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels or about five pounds. That's a lot of hair. I don't have that problem. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I cut my hair every day and it just goes right down the sink. There's no, it wouldn't even weigh on a scale. Five pounds of hair is ridiculous. I think you could add up all the hair I've ever had in my life and it wouldn't weigh five pounds. And to Absalom were born three sons, which later on we're going to find out that he had no sons, and so these sons die prematurely. And he had one daughter whose name was Tamar, so he named his daughter after his sister who was raped and taken advantage of by his brother. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. And so Absalom is just this stud of a guy. He's got just, you know, hair flowing. He, he's, he, he, he just is every woman's dream, right? He, he's, the, he's the guy in chaps with no shirt that every teenage girl has on their wall. I mean, he, he, he looks a lot like me, I'm sure. <laughs> and Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Two years. Can you imagine living in the same city with your son? He's been away from you. For three years, two years before that, he was plotting and planning the murder of your other son. So I doubt you guys were in much fellowship during that time because Absalom hated his dad because he didn't do anything about the sin. So five years before, there really isn't much. Now three more years, they don't even talk. They live right next door to each other. Potentially eight years and there's really no forgiveness There's no reconciliation, but now there's been restoration, and that doesn't work at all. He did not see the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So Absalom's trying to get Joab's attention. Hey, I want to talk to you. And apparently Absalom couldn't really go anywhere. He was, like, bound to his house. David said, look, you can come back, restored to the kingdom... But you've got no position, you've got no power, you have no prominence here. I don't even want to see you. And he can't even leave his house. He's trying to get a hold of Joab. Joab won't come to see him. Which really shows that Joab didn't care about Absalom. Joab just cared about the whole political aspect of this. How it looked. So he said to his servants, See Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. I I like that. That's killer. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Like 12-year-old boys. I can just picture them out there with gas, you know, and matches. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? (laughs) And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you, saying, Come here so that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to still be there. Now therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. Why would you set my field on fire? Hey, I tried to get a hold of you. You wouldn't come see me. It seemed like a good alternative. 
And then he says, look, I've been here for a couple of years. My dad won't even talk to me. It would have been better for me to stay with my grandfather and Gesher. Why would I even come back? I want you to go talk to my dad. And I'm either going to be set free from all of this and given the place that I had before or just kill me, just execute me. So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. So Joab goes to him, he says, look, your son wants to die unless you bring him back to the place he was before. And David says, fine, and he brings him back in. And now David, having restored him, now goes ahead and forgives him, and there's reconciliation, but there's still... No repentance on the part of Absalom, as we're going to see in the next section. Absalom proves in the first 12 verses of chapter 15 that he hadn't repented. And so what was sort of partial forgiveness on David's part, now is full forgiveness in a sense, but there's been no justice and there's been no repentance. And I think, you guys, that we have to, when put in situations where people have offended us. I think for our own good and because of the gospel, we are asked to forgive. That is that we are asked to put it out of our life. We're not, it's not going to affect us. We're not going to harbor bitterness the way Absalom harbored bitter, bitterness against Amnon. We're not going to do that for the sake of the gospel. But I don't think that we are asked to restore people Unless there is justice and repentance. See, we equate often forgiveness and restoration. And they are two different things. David gets it completely backwards. But just because we are asked to forgive doesn't mean that we then restore without there being justice and without there being repentance. And so, yes, you need to give that bitterness to God. You need to take that ill will to Jesus. But if they haven't come to you and they haven't asked forgiveness and they haven't made it right and they haven't dealt with their sin, then you aren't asked to restore that person. And there's all kinds of implications of how this could look in your life. And Absalom proves that he has not truly repented by undermining his father's authority and position. We see this in the first 12 verses of chapter 15. After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. So Absalom does what no king, either Saul or David, or any judge or any leader in Israel up to this point had ever done, which is amass chariots and horses and men to run before him to make him famous. Now Solomon's going to take this to a whole new level. But up to this point, no one had ever done that. Absalom is the first because he's full of himself. I mean, he had been praised his whole life for for his good looks. Which it's really a curse to be that good looking. Because there's really nothing substantial to that. Uh, All it is is the exterior. And that's why God says we shouldn't look on the outward appearance of a person. We should look at their heart. That's where the substance is at. And when you are that attractive physically and you have that much going for you, 
from an exterior standpoint, it really sets you up to be a shallow person. And you have to fight that. And Absalom apparently never did. He's filled with pride and arrogance. He's narcissistic. He can only think of himself. He gets chariots and horses. So now that his dad has fully brought him back into the kingdom, I mean, he's going to go for it. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy, there's no judge of the king to hear you. You're not going to get the ear of the king. He doesn't have time for that. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made a judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so Absalom's like, Look, you're not going to get to the king. He's not going to give you an ear. And then he'd say, Oh, I wish I was a judge in Israel. I wish people would listen to me. And so it was, whenever anyone would come near to bow to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And so Absalom is just setting himself up to have the ear of the people, undermining and usurping his father's authority, and essentially lying about it. Because this woman from Tekoa, she apparently was able to go see the king. And so why was this all of a sudden a problem? It wasn't a problem, but Absalom made it up so that he could get the attention of the people. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole the hearts. He took that position of his father in the hearts of the people and he took it for himself. People do this in the church. People will come and they'll undermine and they'll usurp the authority in the church, the leadership in the church, and they'll draw people away to themselves. It's dishonoring to God. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices, and the conspiracy grew strong, For the people with Absalom continually increased in number. And so because of David's sin, because he didn't deal with the sin in his household, he's now got Absalom usurping his authority, taking the kingdom right out from under him. He's partnered with Ahithophel, who is the father of one of David's mighty men, Eliab, who was the grandfather, Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And apparently, Eliab was put in the place of one of the mighty men of David simply because of David's sin. In other words, hey, let's try to make up for this. Let's put 
Bathsheba's dad in a nice, comfortable position. And he was able to kind of warm Eliab up by doing that, soften him, and apparently there were no problems there. But that didn't work with Ahithophel. And we're going to see that Ahithophel had extreme bitterness toward David because of the sin that he committed against his granddaughter. And all of this happened because David didn't deal with his sin. Because David chose to let it go. And you guys, what I really want to close with tonight is, is this issue of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration and where it comes from. That it, it isn't just something that appears out of nowhere. That there is basis for it. That it can only come through the justice of God and through our repentance. And this issue of propitiation that I brought up, you don't need to turn there if you don't want to, but Romans chapter 3, I want to read to you from Romans three twenty-one to 26. It says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so this righteousness of God that has nothing to do with your good works, has nothing to do with the law or your adherence to the law. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith. So God set forth Jesus as a propitiation. That is one who would take the wrath of God for our sin. There was judgment that had to be paid. God couldn't just set that aside. He couldn't just say, you know what, let's just forget about this. It had to be exercised. It had to be taken care of, this wrath. And he put it on his son. The blood of Christ appeased this wrath of God. And what does it say? It demonstrates his righteousness. See, the cross demonstrates the holiness of God as much as it demonstrates the love of God. It demonstrates to us that God is a holy God that must judge sin. And the shedding of Jesus' blood demonstrates his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so through the cross, you guys, God is just. His justice was revealed. So he's not only displaying his justice through the cross, but he's also justifying the sinner. He's just because he's pouring out his wrath. He's not compromising his holiness. And he's the justifier because through that, we have reconciliation to him. We're forgiven. We're redeemed. We're brought into right relationship with him. And so this, this issue of forgiveness that we all want to have, we want to be forgiven by God. At least you ought to want that because if you're not forgiven by him, then you stand under his wrath. And we want forgiveness and we want reconciliation. 
At least you should want reconciliation. You should want peace with God because the Bible says you're an enemy of God apart from Jesus Christ. And we want restoration. Maybe you don't even realize that, but you want to be restored. You've been wanting to be restored since the day you were born. You've been on this quest to have restoration. And for many of us, we were seeking to be restored in all the wrong ways. We were seeking to be restored through pleasure. We were seeking to be restored through money, through materialism, through education, through affirmation, through the acceptance of our parents, by having people be proud of us, by career advancement, by living vicariously through our children. Whatever it is, whatever idol you've produced in your life, It's this desire to want to be restored to right relationship with God. And because you're not in that place, you're seeking it in all the wrong places. Until you come to Jesus and He truly restores you as an image bearer of God, He restores you to that place of right standing where you understand where you came from and why you're here and where you're going. See, before that, nothing made sense. It was like you could even have everything going well for you. No major tragedies. You're not hooked on drugs. Your kids aren't in jail. I mean, things are going okay. Your marriage isn't in the sewer. Everything's fairly good, but you feel like there's something that is missing from your life. It's like that last puzzle piece that you're looking for everywhere. You've, you've created the puzzle. There's one missing, and you don't know what happened to it. The dog ate it, or some, it got sucked up by the vacuum. It's gone. And it's like, no, this is not complete until I have this piece. And that's what our life apart from Christ is like. I mean, you hear testimonies a lot. You know, I was, I was hooked on meth. My, my child was a pedophile. My husband, you know, beat me, burnt the house down while I was in it, whatever. I, I mean, we hear these stories and we think, well, my life really wasn't like that. My life wasn't that bad. But there was something missing. So you don't have to have this horrendous life to come to Christ. Sometimes I think we have to have these just horrid stories. I've even heard of people that like, make up stuff when they give their testimony so it sounds better. One time I smoked pot. Well, I saw it. You you know, I wanted to punch this kid in the face once. I mean, we're, you know, just people that were raised in the church. It's like, I don't really have much of a testimony. Yes, you do. You were alienated and separated from God. You were an enemy of God. You were on a collision course with his wrath. You have a testimony. And we're all wanting to be restored. And some of us right now are seeking that in all the wrong places. And until you allow Jesus to restore you, none of those other things will fulfill you in any way. You'll continue to seek them and continue to wonder, why doesn't this fulfill me? Why doesn't this make me feel whole? We want restoration. We want forgiveness. We want reconciliation. We want restoration. But you guys, it has to come through justice. He's just, and he's the justifier. He's just in that he poured out his holy wrath on his son. 
There has to be a payment for our sin. And we have to receive that payment. That's redemption. You have to receive the payment that was made on your behalf through Christ. And then there has to be genuine repentance. There has to be a turning away. And we don't really like to talk about repentance. We just want to talk about altar calls. Just raise your hand and say, I want Jesus. Well, that's part of it. But when you truly come into relationship with Jesus, when you confess Him with your mouth and you believe in Him in your heart, there's conversion and there's change and there's repentance that takes place. A complete 180 degree turn from your sin. And you're going to turn back and you're going to fail, but the lifestyle has changed. You're not any longer going headlong into idolatry and pleasure and the seeking of fulfillment through the flesh. You're repenting. You're turning toward God, away from sin. And this story illustrates to us how backwards the world has it. The world says, we can be forgiven, we can be reconciled, we can be restored apart from justice. God's a God of love. He'll just accept you, come to Him however you want to come to Him. In fact, create Him in your mind however you want to create Him. Mold and fashion Him in whatever way you want. It doesn't matter. Just believe in God. That's not justice. There's no payment for our sin. And many people want to come to Jesus. They want to receive forgiveness and and have reconciliation and be restored apart from genuine repentance. And it doesn't work that way. And we see the fruit of it in this story. We see what happens when people are restored apart from forgiveness. We see what happens when there is a pseudo-forgiveness or a pseudo-reconciliation or partial restoration apart from justice and apart from repentance. It doesn't work. And so we need to understand the totality of the gospel, you guys. Not only so that we rightly relate to the gospel personally, not only so that we understand it and can apply it and appropriate it into our own lives, and and some of you here tonight need to do that. You need to receive Jesus Christ and the love that he has for you and the payment that he made for your sin. You need to receive that. But others of you need to understand the gospel so that you can articulate it while on your mission. And not giving people a partial gospel or something that doesn't look like the gospel at all. We need to understand it. We need to be able to tell people what the gospel is and why Jesus died. And people ask you, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Have you ever thought about that? It's a question people are going to ask. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? It's a big topic right now amongst skeptics. If God the Father loved the Son so much, why did He let Him die? Why did He crucify Him and pour out His wrath on Him? That seems kind of like a harsh God. That seems like divine child abuse. Is is one of the things that skeptics are saying right now about Christianity. And you need to be able to combat that. You need to be able to say, look, this is the reason Jesus went to the cross. It's because forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration can only come through justice and genuine repentance. In in explaining that in light of the gospel. And so tonight, as we close, if you don't know Jesus, maybe you've been coming here for 
a, a time now and you don't know him and you want to know him, man, don't leave here tonight without receiving Jesus. And we'd love to talk with you, to pray with you. And if you're a Christian here tonight, and, and maybe you haven't completely understood the gospel so that you can articulate it well, you need to ask God to give you clarity. And maybe you're here and you've got bitterness and unforgiveness and ill will toward people. And you've just said, well, I'm just going to kind of sweep it under the rug. I'm not going to worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. And, and you haven't dealt with it properly. Or maybe you're expecting people to restore you and you haven't truly repented. You haven't went to them and truly made it right. And you're just expecting cheap grace on their part. Whatever the case may be, however the scriptures tonight apply to you, make it real to you. Ask God to confirm these things in you. Let's stand and pray together. Just as we sing this last song, just just ask God to make these things real in your life. I want to ask those that that may not know Jesus tonight. And if you would like to receive him, that right now in the quietness of, of your own heart, you would just say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm separated from you. I know that I've been trying to find fulfillment and restoration in all the wrong things. I know that I've had idols in my life, Lord. I've I've worshipped many things beside you. I've worshipped people. I've worshipped pleasure. God, I've worshipped popularity and fame and materialism. And God, tonight, I ask that you would tear out those idols from my heart. And Jesus, I ask that you would come, that you would be the Lord of my life, that you would forgive me of my sins, that you would restore me, that you would bring me into a a right relationship with you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and fill me so that I can walk with you, so that I can read your word and understand it. so that I can be used by you as a Christian. Thank you for the gift of your son. Those of you that might know Jesus tonight, just ask the Lord to confirm these things to you. God, I pray for all of us that we would be able to clearly articulate the gospel, Lord, that we would be able on our mission to take the gospel to this city, to, to our workplaces, to our families, into our neighborhoods. That, Lord, we would cease making excuses that I'm not a theologian, I don't get it, whatever. That, Lord, we would not just simply be content to have a relationship with you, God, personally, but that, Lord, we want to be on mission with you, taking the gospel to the lost. Lord, forgive us for our idols, 
for raising up things in our life, maybe even good things, God, that have become God things in a, in a way that is dishonoring to you, Lord, and they need to be repented of, God. They need to be stripped from our life. Lord, take them. Remove them from us. God, we're ashamed of those things. And right now, just even mentally, God, we just remove them from our lives. Lord, we remove spouses who have been deified. God, we remove children who have been placed into a godlike status in our heart. God, even pets, Lord, who we've just centered our life around and spent ridiculous amounts of money on. Lord, meanwhile, we're not even giving toward the gospel and the furtherance of your kingdom, and yet we're absolutely pouring money into an animal. God, forgive us for that. God, forgive us for deifying sports and our children's athletic achievements. God, forgive us for wanting to advance in our career and not caring less about advancing in your kingdom and seeing your kingdom advanced in this world. God, forgive us for wanting to be famous and not caring about making Jesus famous. God, we repent. We turn from that tonight. God, take us and use us for your glory. We praise you, Jesus. We thank you, God. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, you may do so at our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Once again, thank you for listening, and God bless.